Hello, and welcome to Kick Out 299. I am Rachel. My pronouns are they, them, and I am still unable to pick my favorite of the four pillars. And I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. Today, we are sitting down with our friend Jack of Jack Shares Graps on Twitter to discuss one of the most legendary rivalries in all of Purasu history, the tale of Mitsuharu Misawa and Kenta Kobashi. Earlier in the year, Jack wrote a fantastic three-part series for our blog, Burning the Walls of Emerald, outlining the unique history and significance of this feud. And today, we're really excited to sit down with him and share even more of his insight with you. All right, so let's get into it. So, Jack, what can you tell us about yourself? My name is Jack. Um, I am originally from, well, I was born in London, but spent most of my childhood in Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, but I currently live in Salford in Greater Manchester. I consider myself both English and Scottish, but I've also lived for several years in Thailand, so I'm sort of from everywhere and nowhere um, to a degree. Um, and um, in the wrestling sphere, what people perhaps know me for is um, um, a mix of things that I do, um, uploading various um, matches and often full shows to YouTube, um, um, particularly Japanese wrestling, but occasional forays into other spheres as well. Um, and also, compiling playlists of recommended matches and putting threads on Twitter for that, um, which can be quite time consuming, which is why I haven't been able to do as many of them lately, but it's something that I really enjoy doing. Um, I also occasionally write about wrestling, not too often, it is fairly sporadic, a couple of different reasons for that. I think having both the time and inclination is quite a rarity, but perhaps also the idea that this white guys wittering on with their views on wrestling is a saturated market, so you don't want to cry that further still. And where can people find your uh, your work, your excellent playlists and everything? I am at Jack Shares Graps on social media. The main places to find me are Twitter. If you want to interact with me, I'm at Jack Shares Graps. And um, if you want to see some of the wrestling that I've uploaded, as well as the playlists that I compile. Um, Jack Shares Graps is also the name of my YouTube channel. And we'll be linking a lot of this stuff in our show notes as well. And I do want to mention that, you know, we're, we're here today to specifically to talk about your sort of expertise around Misawa and Kobashi's rivalry. And you wrote some fantastic articles for Kickout. So we'll talk about a lot of that today. But you were someone very early on that we wanted to, to work with in regards to Kickout. Your name came up quite a bit in some of our earliest meetings, so to speak. And a lot of that was because of your writing around speaking out and how much you talked about that. Um, and that was something that that we really appreciated about you and just about how you use your platform. So I wanted to make sure to uh, take a moment to acknowledge that now about you and about how you use your voice on your platform. So it is important, at least to us, and I want people to know that as well. Yeah, thank you. 
So you referenced before that you do a lot of the uploading of wrestling and a lot of the playlists and um, what I would consider a lot of cataloging and archiving. It's really important work and it's something that's important to our platform. And you do quite a bit of work around All Japan and we're, we're here today to talk to, to talk about rather All Japan quite a bit. So I'm very curious about what your favorite era of All Japan is and which performers have you enjoyed over the course of that company's history? Well, I'd have to say my favorite era would be the 90s. I think having the, the Pillars era, it's such a rarity to get such a group of talented wrestlers. It's when you look at the different ones, we're talking about Misawa and Kobashi today, but also there's Kawada, Tawe. Having that sort of crop of extraordinarily talented wrestlers all coming to the fore at the same time. So for me, the particularly the most exciting era is the early 90s. So the rivalry between Super Generation Army and Suruta Gun, because I always find that the most exciting times to be a wrestling fan are the times when you feel like something is coming up and the idea that this is starting to get really good, good. And there's that build of anticipation and your mind wonders to where it might go from there. Um, I always find that that's where you get the freshness, the ideas, the energy that comes from it. Um, but I do like a lot of the other areas as well. And um, going back from the start of the promotion I like a lot of Baba's early work both um, in the JWA and in early all Japan and um, in the 80s when you've got Saruta and Tenryu and then even after the exodus I think there's a lot of great stuff there I'm a big fan of Satoshi Kojima in the 2000s so lots of great stuff and even right through to the modern era where I don't get to watch it as often but I do always try to dip in every now and then and there are a lot of wrestlers who are really like like they're currently so so it really does span the whole promotions history that is awesome that's really thorough and really excellent but to uh, narrow it down a little bit to the topic of the episode what originally drew you to misawa and kobashi's rivalry i think what originally drew me was they were both among first Japanese wrestlers that I actually saw. My first exposure to Japanese wrestling was at the time it would have been in the early to mid 2000s on TV in Britain and Ireland. There was um, a wrestling channel on Sky TV and I didn't have Sky at the the time. That was sort of a a subscription package, but my partner at that time did and we'd spend sort of a lot of lazy afternoons just with it on and that was and one of the promotions that they had there sort of they had things like tna ring of honor they were showing old british world of sport wrestling but they also had um, noah and so that was the first japanese wrestling that i saw was at the time contemporary noah and i was a little taken aback because i think from stories from people like mick foley and terry funk i thought all japanese wrestling was kind of crazy death match wrestling that you'd sort of see just these clips of with these big explosions and barbed wire and this was not what I was expecting but then when you sort of watch it for a while then you start to think oh this is really good actually um, I'd like to see a bit more of this and you sort of don't really know how to follow that up so there's sort of a long gap then um, before you get more exposure to it unfortunately I missed out on the tape trading era I didn't know about things like Fighting Spirit magazine at the time and I regret missing out on 
that, but also the chance to see some of these wrestlers live when you had the European Navigation Show in Coventry, which sort of knowing now that I could have gone to that if, if I'd if I'd have been aware, it is quite frustrating. But life's full of these things where you sort of wish that you'd had the chance to, and that's sort of part of what makes me want to upload matches to YouTube is to make these things more accessible in a way that perhaps they weren't weren't previously. But I think with Mizawa and Kabashi, what I first saw from them, kind of intensity that um, I'd always really liked in wrestling, but previously to that, you'd only seen it. I don't, I personally had only seen it very sparingly in the wrestling that I, I was watching. So from them, I was kind of seeing the kind of wrestling that I liked, but only got to see it very occasionally on a much more regular basis and done to what I thought was a very high level and that drew me in. And then later on, once these things get more accessible on the internet, you sort of start to expand your horizons and perhaps work through some of the matches that are considered sort of the all-time greats and things. You're working through these things chronologically. And of course, Mizawa and Kabashi are two names that repeatedly come up in that list. So you're seeing them initially of as tag partners and then you sort of see that rivalry build so having seen sort of the end of it then you're sort of going back to the beginning and seeing how they got to that point and seeing that development and that is the sort of brilliant thing about when you get into king's road in all japan is that the booking is sort of designed for especially for newer folks now that are trying to access this this wrestling you can watch it chronologically and the stories make sense all the way through and you can watch the development of these wrestlers it's really something to see when you, when you start with especially the the pillars era and you watch them you know develop as as uh, the 90s kind of go on through through to the exodus and where they all end up it's kind of incredible it's um really i think unique to the storytelling that was happening in all japan at that time as well but um i wanted to reference the first part of your your three-part article series for kick out burning the walls of emerald and in part one you do a fantastic job of talking about the brotherly bond between misawa and kobashi which i think is a very unique part of their relationship and you talk about in super generation army kobashi being a distant third in that unit so i'm wondering jack if you could just kind of expand on the dynamics of the earliest parts of their relationship in that sort of 90 to 93 period yeah so i think that comes from misawa being sort of seven years into his career by the time that um kobashi starts in the dojo so you have a difference in age and seniority but not such a huge one. You know, in all Japan, you have very much Baba as the, the father figure. And at the time, you'd have established main eventers um, in the 80s, so Tenryu and, and Suruta as sort of these fully-fledged adult figures. So with Mizawa and Kabashi, you have this feeling of someone who's older, but not so older that they're totally unrelatable. And you hear Kabashi talk about Mizawa is someone who taught him how to be a champion. And um, Mizawa saw um, Kobashi as very much someone who he could have close to him. Mizawa was a much heavier drinker than Kobashi, so would take him out. And Kobashi wouldn't be able to keep, keep up with him, but would always try. So the story is of him getting absolutely drunk and then Mizawa still being willing to keep going and have some more long after Kabashi's passed out. But when it came to um, time for the group to be elevated, so the Super Generation Army, 
after Tenry leaves, you have Misawa there as very much the, the automatic pick to be the leader of that surge. And you have Kawada who's just behind him in age and seniority, and that feeds very much into their story of Kawada always being behind Misawa and sort of frustrations that, that builds in, into them. But with Kobashi, um, initially he's quite a bit younger than them. Um, he doesn't have the same established track records. So while they're there in the main event tag scene, he's going after the all Asia tags team titles with Kikuchi, um, where the roles are reversed and he's the senior partner. So he, he gets to play both roles in that scenario where he's leading those tags, but then when he's in all of the six-man tag matches, he's taking a lot of the damage. He's very much the sort of face in peril figure of the team. And um, if they're on the losing side, he's typically the one taking the pin. I think that in that early 90s stage, it is very much of he's the future, but a much further off future than Mizawa and Kawada at that time. And it's interesting because Misawa and Kawada also had a tag team. I believe that their tag team success was in 91 and 92. And I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on what the, what the legacy of those tag teams are compared to each other. So that earlier uh, Misawa and Kawada partnership and then compared to what would go on to form between Misawa and Kobashi because there's some interesting opinions, I think, on, on either set of tag teams on what you think is the better partnership for Misawa, for example, but I'm curious to see what you think, Jack. Obviously, you're here to talk specifically about Misawa and Kobashi, so we can we can guess at what your feelings are, but I'm just curious to see what you think, what the legacy of those tag partnerships are for Misawa when compared to each other. Well, there are two, in some ways, very different kinds of tag team. Um, I think with Misawa and Kawada together, um, you have very much this pair of young pretenders they're challenging Taruta, they're challenging Hansen. They're looking to make a name for themselves and make an impression on that main event stage. Um, so they're very much um, butting heads against the more established forces. But later on, um, when Kawada leaves the Super Generation Army and Kobashi effectively takes his place as Mizawa's tag team partner, by then Mizawa was already established as very much the ace of the company and much of that tag run happens concurrently with Mizawa's big triple crown run. So he's, he's the champion, he's the dominant figure. And at the start of that tag team, um, this is Kobashi's first real foray into sort of all Japan's main event scene. Um, so this is where he starts to get those Budokan Hall main events um, and really make an impression, not just as um, sort of an additional hand to the unit, but is very much a force in his own right. And so you see Kobashi throughout the length of that tag team, which isn't really all that long, it's just a couple of years. Um, but he goes from this sort of plucky young wrestler to a serious main event force that can challenge any of the top players in the company. And in that same line of thinking, I'm, I'm very curious, because we know from people like Fumi Saito and Dr. Jonathan Foy, that there's some interesting dynamics through the, the years um, of Misawa and Kawada's relationship. At times, very much brothers, but also at times, very much at, completely at odds with each other. So in your opinion, as the third man kind of coming up just behind them, what do you think Kobashi may have been able to take from his observations of them in his wrestling and also in his conduct? 
Well, I think that perhaps in viewing Mizawa's relationship with Kawada, he can see, he gets the opportunity to see close at hand how to both team with Mizawa, but then also how to sort of break off and face him, even though Kobashi's rivalry with Kawada ends up being a very different rivalry. Um, Mizawa and Kawada is sort of a rivalry based heavily on that personal connection and and somewhat of a degree of tension and animosity, whereas Kabashi and Mizawa, it's always a sort of, there's a, always a mutual respect there, but just a determination to be the best. But if you think about sort of Kobashi as being the youngest of the four pillars, um, and in those early years, sort of very much in the shadow of Mizawa and Kawada, you can sort of see parallels with other groups sort of. So if you saw the four pillars, perhaps as a comparison with the Beatles, you've got Mizawa and Kawada is very much the sort of Lennon and and McCartney, this brilliant but occasionally contentious partnership. And then he's very much the sort of George Harrison figure of sort of the, the quiet pillar, who it's only later on that he really begins to find his voice truly and make and make a name in his own right. That's a brilliant reference for them, actually. Not not necessarily one I would have come up with just thinking about it, but that's no, that's brilliant for them. Thank you for that. That that really gets into about, I suppose, 93 when um, Isawa and Kobashi's tag team sort of really comes together at that point. So I'm just wondering if you can sort of walk us through the formation of that tag team and what their early success was like at that point. Yes, so um so they formed in the aftermath of the formation of the Holy Demon Army. So you've just had Kawada after the match with Tawe sort of joining forces with, with him. And that would have been a shocking moment um, for both fans and for the remaining members of the Super Generation Army. So it's very much a response to that. And then I think the emphasis really goes from in previous years it had been um, Mizawa, in the Super Generations Army struggle with Saruta Gun, it was headed up by his conflict with Jumbo Saruta, with the subplots of Kawada against Tawe. Um, and this really brings all four of the pillars as peers um, together um, for the first time. It's all four of them as the four biggest Japanese stars of the company. Um, all of the previous main eventers have either left the company or taken more of a back seat. And then this gives Misawa and Kabashi um, a chance to really show the dynamics of them as a team. Um, and you see the contrast between them. You've got Misawa as a sort of constant eternal ace figure. He's very stoic. And then Kabashi, who brings passion to everything he does. You can always see the story of a match in Kobashi's face. He wears his emotions in a huge way. And so that that inevitably helps to get fans behind him and the team as a whole. And you get that more and more as the team builds on. Um, and it really culminates in the 95 tag match. We see the ultimate gestures of that. Um, idea of Kobashi as the valiant baby face in terms of him throwing his body over Misawa to prevent him from being attacked. Um, and then that really shows 
the bond between them um, as a team and that and it's hard to really top that that moment so I think that, that it's logical that that comes in the final year of them as a regular tag team. I'm glad that you said that because one of my favorite parts of part one of your series was you talking about that dynamic between them, the way that their personalities contrasted each other. Um, I love that you said like a Buster Keaton-like uh, stoicism that has always stuck with me since. And I have uh, used this article or the series um, to get into King's Road. I wasn't really into it before. So you making those comparisons really, really helped me out. And it has stuck with me ever since. So I'm really glad you brought up that contrast. So skipping ahead just a little bit, uh, Kobashi first won the Triple Crown Championship on July 24th, 1996 to Akira Tawe. So long, long before he scored a title win over Misawa. What effect would you say this had on the overall storytelling of this rivalry of this feud? Does Kobashi winning the title from anyone other than Misawa ultimate take away from the moment or would you say it kind of adds to it I'm really curious there I think it's an important and necessary step and I do think it adds to the moment in a sense but also takes away from it it's it's a key goal to becoming champion of course but while he is the champion he isn't ever truly the ace until he can overcome Misawa and I think that part of what makes this rivalry and Kobashi's career more broadly um, so compelling is the idea of this gradual steps and elevations towards the ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal is very much Misawa. So you have him gradually growing in stature. Um, I think I mentioned in the article the importance of his victory over Terry Gordy, the rivalry with Stan Hansen, and it's very much the order in which he um, seeks to overcome the other three pillars. So first he has to overcome Tawe, then he has to meet the challenge of Kawada, and, and then Mizawa being very much the ace is that final challenge that is very much the most difficult. So I think winning the Triple Crown Championship um, does a lot for him in terms of establishing him as someone who potentially could become the ace and could potentially defeat um, Mizawa, um, but it always leaves something further just out of reach. Um, I think in wrestling, if you achieve all of your goals straight away, then there's the question of, okay, where do we go from here? It's not like a film. At the end of a show, there's always the next show. So there's always the question of what next? And I think with holding back on that big victory over Misawa, it always gives you an X to go to while having all of those other milestones um, and big achievements on the way. I think that's a brilliant point that Rachel and I, when we're just discussing wrestling and the way people react to wrestling, we kind of, we sort of bat that around, but you just sort of summed it up very eloquently. And I think it's something that modern wrestling fans perhaps um, it's easy to forget, right? What is the phrase? You can't see the forest through the trees, sort of. Is, is that the right phrase to use in this situation? I think that's sort of what you're touching on. And I think that's that's brilliant. And for for some reason, when you're when you're able, I suppose, to to look at the totality of the, of, um, of something like the era of King's Road, you can sort of see how the 
a lot of the storytelling and not all of it was was to plan right there I don't necessarily think that Baba sat down and said well Kobashi Misawa you guys aren't going to have the big payoff to your rivalry until the early 2000s. I don't think that's what he said, but um, <laughs> um, I, I do think there is something to um, to setting up those sorts of goals. Otherwise, you know, what what would anyone have else have to achieve? You would you would accomplish everything all at once, and then that would fall very flat. So, thank you, Jack. I I think that's brilliant, and I do want to ask you, and I think this will be great to hear your perspective on, because it's something that me and Rachel find infuriating all the time. It's something that I find infuriating all the time as someone who's constantly trying to find more All Japan matches, but um, you note this in your series that uh, Kobashi defeats Misawa for the first time in Champion Carnival, and that's in, um, that's March of 97, but that match was untelevised, so and it's not the it's not the only significant match of their rivalry that went untelevised, which is just like sort of devastating to have that loss of of, of wrestling of something so significant. And um, that there's a lot of that in wrestling and of, and of Puro um, and in of all Japan in particular, I think. So what are sort of the challenges in covering this kind of story when key matches in your research are untelevised and how do you sort of approach and tackle that? Well, there's a huge challenge, um, I think, is obviously the moment that Kobashi first defeats Misawa, you can't help but think of that as such a key point in this story. But as you said, it's one that we'll never see. So it's sort of, you very much have to fill in the blanks. I think of any um, wrestling match that um, throughout history that we don't have footage of, if you could get one and just be able to obtain it somehow, it would very much be that one. I think that that's the one frustrating thing for me about this rivalry is that we, the wider audience, don't get to see that key moment um, in the development of the story, even though the biggest um, challenge is defeating Mizawa for the championship, defeating him in the Champions Carnival. Again, it's another one of those key steps of moving Kabashi towards that goal. Now you know for certain that he can, on his best day, overcome Mizawa. But it is strange that in the modern era, we are used to far more events sort of being accessible to view, um, events that previously would have just been un- untelevised house shows. We can now see almost everything, but the, these sort of shows weren't designed for a wider audience. So you have this show that's a stop on a tour. Television was primarily used as a tool to generate interest to sell tickets um, to various locations. You see these people on the TV and you think, ah, when they're in my town, I want to go to this. So it was very much these matches were built with the intention of that local audience. So I don't think any of them would have anticipated that 25 years later and on the other side of the world, there'd be people that are very frustrated to learn that they'll never see these things that were just intended for a small house show audience um, in provincial Japan. But trying to sort of weave that into the narrative, you look at sort of changes in de- demeanor from that point. I think that after that, you do see some, some slight differences in how Kobashi carries himself going into matches with Mizawa. Um, he comes into them much closer to being his equal. Um, and you can just see changes in his facial expressions in terms of um, sort of seriousness of the matches there is the feeling that this is something that could go either way um, from this point onwards 
Um, it's like when you have a friend who you haven't seen for a while. And um, in that intervening time, there's been something that there's been some sort of shift in their personality. Somehow, and you haven't been witness to that. You haven't seen what's happened, but you know that there's something important that's changed their approach and their outlook in life. And I think that that's what you see with Kobashi from that point onwards. It's sort of brilliant because what you've described is that Kobashi has finally found a chink in Misawa's armor through defeating him there. And I think that comes across so beautifully in the way that Kobashi carries himself. And he's sort of an unparalleled storyteller in that way. And I don't know if, I think he does get credit to how he, he demonstrates these stories, but I think that um, not not always, I think it's easy to sort of misunderstand, but no, I think that's that's brilliant. I do want to say to your point about um, about how difficult it is when you can't find the match is what ends up being funny is that you can usually find the shoe pro or the gong where there's pictures of the match and that's the only thing you can get. So that's that's the, the funny part is that um, a lot of the time I'll, I'll go and I'll pick up a magazine and I'll find a match and I'll look at the photos and I'll say, I didn't know this happened. This is really weird. And I'll try to look up the match and the match doesn't exist. It's not on tape. So we have these brilliant photos of it. And then it becomes the issue of like, well, how do we, now we have to figure out a way to archive the photos that the photos still exist because they don't appear to be on the internet. <laughs> and um, we have to make sure that they, they exist in some form or fashion because we don't have the, the moving record that the match existed. So it's just, um, it's sort of funny. Yeah. And we have to sort of piece together the story from whatever scraps of photographs or match report, show reports or whatever we can find. Um, to build this incomplete picture and make it as whole as we can, um, often through improvised means, not just in wrestling, sort of in other mat archive materials. So you think about film and television, um, sort of footage that's been lost um, through time, things that haven't been preserved. Outside of wrestling, one of my um, big passions is the TV series Doctor Who. Um, and a lot of the early 60s episodes from that uh, are missing. The original tapes were destroyed um, back in the 70s, um, sort of not long before VHS became available. Um, so it was just a few years late and it was sort of, this was something that was made to be shown on TV once and then, and then discarded. But when you have a medium that has a lot of passion, there will always be people looking to revisit that. And I think that wrestling brings um, sort of a lot of people with um, a very complainist mindset. You, you don't want, just want to take the highlights. You just want to try and grab as much of it as you can. And it is very frustrating for people um, living today when we perhaps are the most documented generation in history to try and find, go back to previous eras where it's not as extensive. And, and then when you do find material, when something sort of comes up that was previously thought of as lost, it sort of is it almost becomes like the lost city of Atlantis, sort of this real excitement of getting hold of it. Brilliantly said, and we're something we're all really passionate about here. And you definitely describe the feeling of finally finding something just perfectly encapsulated there. Now let's talk a little bit about the burning hammer. It was invented on October 24th, 1998 in a tag match with Jinsei Shinzaki against Misawa and Tikao Amori to pin Misawa. Can you tell us a little bit more about this finisher and the significance of it being invented on Misawa? Yes, yeah, so um, I think that 
even without knowing anything further about the context of the move, if you were to just see it in isolation, when you see Kabashi lifting someone up on his shoulders, just driving them down on their head and neck with such extreme force, I think that the, your first sort of reaction to that is just to gasp, is that man still alive almost? Um, but it becomes this very key part of um, who he is and his arsenal. Um, and it is very important that um, it sort of is first used on Misawa. Um, it sort of, in, in a way, that serves to elevate them both. Um, from Kabashi's standpoint, you have this ultimate weapon in his arsenal that no one can withstand. But then from Misawa, you have this idea of, okay, now we know um, that in order to defeat him, you really need to give everything um, that you have and then some and sort of like to beat this man you have to kill him almost. So Kabashi does this finisher for the first time uh, just days before a triple crown match with Misawa on October 31st. Would you say that doing this move in advance was what cost Kobashi that match because Misawa was ready for it or was there something else? I think that from the story of that match, I think that that is very much a big component to it. Um, there's a reason why the move was debuted in the tag match rather than sort of big, bigger scale championship match. Anytime that a wrestler debuts a new finisher, you're not going to get the big reaction because people, the audience don't know what to respond to. They're not expecting it. So the first time a wrestler wins a match using new finisher, there is sort of this, oh, is that the end of the match? That's not how we were expecting it to finish. Um, but then from there, it sort of trains the audience to know what to look out for. So every time that Kabashi goes for it, you get this huge swell of response from the crowd. So it builds into the story of the match. We know that he's got this new and devastating weapon is he able to use it when it matters most? Um, and you see him go for it in the match and fail to hit it. It's sort of like at times when you repeatedly fail to achieve something um, and then you manage to do it successfully one time. And then the next time you instantly want to sort of repeat your steps exactly. You think, okay, I've got this now. I just have to do this and then I'm set. But then I think in the story of that match, it's very much Kobashi trying to force the move at not the right time. Um, he perhaps feels that this is what he has to do to win, um, but he's not yet at the stage of knowing not just how to use the move, but when to use the move. I think that that's a key thing for his development of while he is capable, he's not consistent with it. And that comes with time. Um, it's sort of like when you improvise something, it takes a, a tremendous amount of practice to get good at improvising so that you know you're not just doing something off the cuff, but you have all of that skill and experience um, to know your timings and when to use what. Yeah, and to that end, that actually ties into what we were talking about with um... Kobashi defeating Tawe and how we can't use everything in the story and conclude it here. We have to work our way towards it. And uh, 
So it's interesting you should say that introducing the burning hammer before a title match sort of uh, makes way through a uh, new subplot in the story almost. So I really, I like that. I like the um, idea of steps and uh, Kobashi sort of working his way up towards knowing when to use the burning hammer. It, it ties into very much the core of the storytelling during this feud. So that's really, really cool that you should mention that. So this is probably my favorite part of your uh, series is when you talk a little bit about Kobashi defeating Misawa in the 2000 Champion Carnival, and he does not use the burning hammer to defeat Misawa. And I believe you write exactly. In the end, it had always been the man and not the move that was key to defeating Misawa one of my absolute favorite quotes, but could you expand a little bit more on that and tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that that's very much plays into what we were just talking about. And sort of once Kobashi first has the burning hammer, he, he's desperate to use it. He has this fixation with this is what is needed to defeat Misawa um, without later realizing that he is the one that implemented the move and then he is the one that is behind that and is very much the one that can defeat Mizawa, burning hammer or no. This is a way to defeat him. It's very important, um, but it is not the only way. And then um, I think that that shows that he is growing very much as a wrestler who can overcome his, even his greatest challenge. There's more than one route to that. And that makes him more dangerous and less predictable. Um, you see sort of um, Burning Hammer as the super finisher that's only used very sparingly. I sometimes think that perhaps all finishers in wrestling should be super finishers. Um, and that I think that far too many matches are just so reliant on, okay, the finishing move is what finishes the match. And then you have a series of near falls on signature moves that never result in a victory. And you're expected to buy into the possibility that this will end the match. And you know that that is almost certainly not going to happen. So I think more wrestlers should finish matches in a variety of different ways so that you have this idea that you don't know when the end is going to come. It could come from any of these moves. And then when you have these finishers that are used so sparingly, it really reinforces that this is an extreme measure and this is a special occasion. And that really ties into what I was uh, going to sort of ask next, work my way towards, is would you say that any other wrestler has a finisher with the same level of, I'd say, significance or rarity, protection even, as the Burning Hammer? Or would you say it's a pretty one-of-a-kind finisher in terms of its use in storytelling? Well, I think that there have been a number of sort of great super finishers throughout history. I think that Mizawa himself has two in both the Tiger Driver 91 and then later the Emerald Flosion. Um, in terms of their power and reputation. But you look at things like Kawada's Ganzo Bomb or Akiyama's Exploder 98 or Kenta's Ura GTS. Um, but for me, it is very much the Burning Hammer is unrivaled in sort of how devastating it is and how iconic it is um, by its selective use and by just the 
visual spectacle of it. Um, I think that sometimes that move, it sort of transcends even Kobashi himself. I've got a friend of mine who sort of very, very casually and loosely follows Japanese wrestling. He's not too familiar with stories of King's Road and the Pillars. He sort of knows the names, but that's the extent of it. Um, and then sort of, when I said, um, when I was talking about Kento Kobashi, and he was like, oh, he's the Burning Hammer guy. And so, so he knew the move first and then Kobashi. And that, and I think that that's very rare to have a wrestler who is known so heavily associated with one particular move and the sort of mystique of that. To your point, we were, Rachel and I just did an episode on Noah's factions. We were talking about some of these concepts, some of these groups rather, as brands. And I think that burning of it in and of itself is, is a brand, right? It's, it's Kobashi's outlook on Parasu, but um, even the burning hammer isn't in and of itself a brand. It is something that is that is marketable. It's something that they have used um, to to show Kobashi to the world, really. And it's brilliant and it's really unique. And I and I do agree with you, Jack. I think it I think it is so unique to him because even with uh, Misawa and the and the Emerald Flosion, I mean, you still see a lot of that within the marketing of some of Misawa's like merch that they do even now. But it's so different to me in how synonymous that burning hammer is with Kobashi and how often that'll come up in conversation to the point where even me, even I, as a, as a new fan of Puro years and years ago, I thought that was the move he hit all the time to end matches. And I think that's, that's fairly common of most people who are getting into Puro. You just think that's his everyday regular, regular finisher and it's not. So um, that is sort of the fascinating thing about the burning hammer, but it does make it rather unique to, uh, to Kobashi. But going away from, from All Japan and the, the fascinating Burning Hammer, this story, and I sort of hinted at it with, uh, with my comment about Baba earlier, but this story is sort of fascinating because it does take place over the span of about 15 years. It takes place in two promotions. And you mentioned in part three of your series that Kobashi didn't pick up with Misawa right where they left off when they got to Noah. He actually picks up with Akiyama, who is now turned completely away from Burning and Kobashi, and he's broken off into sternness. And now it's, we're looking at Akiyama versus Kobashi. So I'm wondering um, how you sort of felt about this. Did they, did they make the right call in not focusing on tying up that loose end of the rivalry between Misawa and Kobashi starting right away in Noah, or was it right to use Kobashi to elevate Akiyama? Um, I think it was important in the early days of Noah that it was not just seen as a continuation of 90s old Japan. If you think at the time of the exodus that finishes with Kobashi as the Triple Crown champion, and if you'd just gone straight from that to, okay, Kobashi is now the first GHC champion with still Akiyama as his number two, people would think, okay, where's the difference? You're just retreading old ground in this. But I think in beginning, Noah, with that split between Kobashi and Akiyama, foundation of sternness, it sets it up as this is a new thing, this is something different that takes those old elements but reinvents them present something that we haven't seen before. And then it serves to help elevate Akiyama, which sometimes you do wish that they'd gone further with. Um, it becomes sort of a recurring theme um, almost throughout Noah's history, the sort of frustration of trying to get them to get behind um, younger and up and coming talent more. 
you'd have liked to have seen Akiyama more fully established uh, as a period with him on top um, in his own right, really serving as a bridge between the Pillars generation and then later the generation of Kenta and Marafuji. So I think it is very important to establish that. And then you've still always got the unfinished business of Misawa and Kabashi there in the background that you know is going to come at some point and that they always have that in their arsenal of this is our big go-to feud. Again, there's the idea of doing too much too soon and then you've got nothing left in the future. This holds back this big, important match that can sell out any building at any time when they need to go to it. And to your point, that uh, culmination does eventually happen. On March 1st, 2003, phenomenal match. How do you feel about the timing of this match in their story, particularly for Kabashi? You talk about the ravages of time in your article, speaking on Kabashi's injury and the stress Misawa has undergone. Do these ravages add something to the match or do they take something away from it? What are your thoughts on that? I think that they take something away in terms of the pure physical aesthetics of the match, but add far more in terms of story. I think if if you were to look at the 2003 match, it is not at the highest level in comparison to certain other matches, even that the two of them have had together. I think that if you're to watch any match in isolation, some of those late 90s matches, if you're to watch those without any understanding of the story, you might see that as a better match. Some of the moves are crisper, more executed. But then once you get to 2003 and you have that increase in age, you have that wear and tear, you have this idea of these are two old gunslingers facing off one last time and you sort of feel with that the pain and the stress of the situation and everything, I think, that from that standpoint has more of an impact and more of a sort of visceral struggle because of it. That's a great way to put it, that old gunslingers. I like that for them at that time. I think that's sort of lovely, actually. <laughs> I like that a lot. And I'm just curious to Jack, is with, with the way that some rivalries can sort of be set up in pro wrestling, not, not everyone comes out of the rivalry being the, the focal point, being the star from that rivalry, right? With these two, would you say that this rivalry between Misawa and Kobashi, is it more focused on Misawa's story or is it more focused on Kobashi's? Or would you say that it's about both of them in the end and that both of them sort of share an equal role in the story? Well, I'd say throughout 90s old Japan generally, um, Misawa is very much the main character um, of it all. You often hear people talk about their fondness for Kobashi or Kawada or Tawe, but it is important that you do have that central figure that allows the others to sort of play off and sort of their personalities sort of are molded in response to their placement in comparison to Mizawa. So you always need that main character um, to allow people to have that dynamic of where do they fit in comparison with this person. But for me, the the story of the rivalry is very much Kobashi's story. Um, We begin with him as very much this young underdog, and it's just 
as we said, the continual story of him getting ever closer and closer and closer, but never quite achieving the goals until that big moment in 2003. Um, so the rivalry ends with his story. It's reached its logical conclusion. You've held off for 15 years and then he finally achieves it. And, and then from there, if you were to try and revisit the story, you would, you would just be retreading old ground. At that point, you've done everything that you can do. And that's why it ends at that point with Kobashi finally defeating uh, Misawa for the GHC title. I love that you said that, uh, especially about Misawa. And um, that sort of highlights something that a lot of people overlook when it comes to um, the role of an ace, is they're also this bedrock that the rest of the promotion is kind of built around how they compare to the ace, how they stack up against the ace. And that builds a lot of the main stories of the promotion. So that's really great that you throw that out there and that you have Misawa sort of as something to compare that to when you're looking at uh, characters such as Go Shiyazaki or even Kazuchika Okada and other aces that um, sometimes, you know, things like Okada gets a lot of hate for winning as much as he does. But when you think about, you know, the importance of that role, especially looking at Misawa, you start to see why Okada wins all the time. There's there's a reason for it. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, and it's like the um, counter to that. The reverse is that Okada almost doesn't feel right without the championship. He is not the one who should be pursuing. He is the pursued. He is the, the ultimate goal. So there are times when if, if someone else is holding the championship, there is always the feeling that, oh, well, Okada feels a little bit lost right now. And so an ace that's not at the top of the at the top of the mountain, there is often that struggle of what to do with them when they're not the focal point, because that is where they naturally live. And that's an interesting thing to bat around when we think about Noah and some of the struggles that Noah has had, particularly um, their issues building new stars, especially in that that early, you, you referenced it, Jack, Akiyama, you know, they, they made the attempt and then it didn't necessarily go to plan, I think, in the way that they probably wanted to. You have then Kenta and Marafuji, their generation, a lot of issues there. And a lot of that is because people could not could not see Misawa or Kobashi as, you know, at the forefront of the promotion. So it's it's interesting to reflect on that because in in those ways and in, in where it's sort of strange to not have either of them at the helm of the promotion, at the same time, it actually did a lot of damage to the promotion to have them at the top constantly and, and not working those, those uh, younger guys up to the forefront. So just an interesting conundrum that doesn't seem to have a great way to, uh, a great solution, no matter how we look at it, even with the passing of time. Yeah, and I think it, looking back in hindsight, it's one of those things. There was the attempt to build those younger guys. There was that um, initial attempt with Akiyama. And then later on, when you look at Kobashi's title reign, it's sort of ending at the hands of Takeshi Rikio. Um, and sometimes a promotion can put all of their forces towards trying to make someone that future star. And for a variety of reasons, it just doesn't work out. Thing with Rikio, there was that attempt sort of ending Kobashi's reign became a really important factor. But then you have the frustration of okay, well, the match itself 
wasn't perhaps to the caliber of some of the other matches along the way. And then you perhaps think, well, perhaps this title reign really should have been ended by Akiyama. That was the logical final goal of that. That's where it was heading. And then we don't get that. And then so we don't get that point where we fully crown Akiyama in the same way that Misawa and Kobashi had been crowned before. Um, so I think just winning the championship in and of itself isn't the full story. It is important to establish an ace. You have to then defeat an ace. So Misawa becomes an ace by defeating Saruta. Kobashi becomes an ace by defeating Misawa. You then needed for Akiyama to become an ace to have that all-important win that never came. Absolutely, and it's a shame too because we we talked about this on our last episode on Noah factions too, and and it seems like in those earliest years they really set up the factions to sort of bring up the newer talent in such a way where they they really they were an extension of of the way that all Japan factions were sort of laid out, and that they were really like sumo stables, and they they sort of worked in that way as well. So it's a shame because you really had, you know, Kobashi working with this younger set of guys. You had Akiyama doing the same and Misawa doing the same. And yet um, when it came time to uh, the, you know, the attempts were made, they did the same thing with Marafuji um, as well. And then when the ticket sales didn't work for Marafuji versus Kenta in the second match in Marafuji's reign, that's when they had to then kind of pull back on all of that. But it's a shame because you can see where they had laid the foundation of um, the older generation working with the younger generation to get them over. It's just that they couldn't get over these sort of important things to the earlier part of the promotion in terms of selling tickets and, and making sure that they kept selling out arenas. And that's a shame, but I think it does, the, the attempt shows you where I think perhaps Misawa and, and Kobashi in particular were in that um, they were getting older. They were towards, you know, they should have been towards the end of their careers, but the thought that they could foster these newer, you know, generations and sort of, you know, be more in a, in a mentor role than they had been perhaps even before, I think was there and is important, I think, to know if that makes sense. Yes, and you can see a struggle in terms of, for any wrestling promoter, of course, it is important to think about your bottom lines, what is going to sell tickets, but then also have an eye to what is going to sell tickets in the future. And it takes time to turn someone into a draw. Um, when you try to push new faces, you might experience some initial losses from that. But sometimes you do have to have that patience to sort of persevere from it, um, while also sort of seeing what are the signs of, okay, when is the time to rethink this? Perhaps if something isn't working, can we retool this in a way to make it turn it around so that it does work or do we need to go with someone else but you do think that coming from that era of consecutive major sellouts and then you're going to a period when wrestling in japan business was down more generally um not just in noah but across promotions there was that caution of okay we need to go back to the old reliable the things that we know work and that can help you in the short term but in the long term, it'll leave you worse off. Which is extremely unfortunate, but beautifully said. So speaking of, I guess, sort of the future, this whole thing sort of leads into my next question in general. Um, let's talk a little bit about the ultimate legacy and impact of this rivalry. You mentioned that uh, fantastic 
legendary 735 day reign with the GHC. Do you think that this reign could have ever happened uh, without this feud with Misawa? And I think we've spoken a little bit about um, that already, but would they have ever booked him that strong without this feud? What ifs are always difficult because you never know how things would pan out. I think that there could have been the attempt to book him that strong and you may have had that long title reign, but it wouldn't have had the same impact. Um, sometimes you can go for this long title reign and it doesn't feel earned in the same way that this one does as a result of that victory. That is, Kobashi spent his whole career a decade and a half trying to reach the top of this mountain, the mountain very much represented by one person in Mizawa. He has to do that. And then once he does that, he is then at the top of the mountain. And then he is the one that the others are pursuing. Um, and I think that if he had not defeated Mizawa, it would have just been, okay, this is what we're doing now. He would have been a champion but not the ace in the same way that he becomes as a result of that victory. So let's get, uh, this one's, I guess, a, a really interesting question and it might be a little difficult, but uh, are there any other rivalries or storylines in wrestling, particularly Puro, that sort of compare to Misawa and Kobashi? Do you think it's possible to recreate a rivalry like this or was it sort of lightning in a bottle like um, was it a product of its time? Well, I think particularly in the history of Puro, there are a lot of signature rivalries. I think that quite often you see these sort of longer stories. And the key thing is the difference between a rivalry, which is something that you can keep coming back to over a series of, of years, and a feud, which is very much a short-term thing that's building to one particular match. Um, so you do have a lot of um, important rivalries in Puro as a result of wrestlers staying in one company and working with those same people again and again and again. In all Japan, previous generation, the big rivalry was Tenryu against Jumbo Tsuruta. Um, I think that both Mizawa and Kobashi's rivalries with Ko Kawada are some of the all-time greats as well. Um, later on, you get Kenta and Marafuji's rivalry, and then going back to Okada and Tanahashi. Excellent. Yeah, those are great comparisons. And I would love to hear, and I'm sure that people listening would love to hear as well, if you have some recommendations for favorite tag matches for Misawa and Kobashi, but also your favorite singles matches from them, just any recommendations that you can give for those guys that people can... Um, look up and watch and maybe why they speak to you and maybe some importance in terms of the storyline or spots to look out for anything like that. Yeah, I think um, the, with the story of this rivalry, always great to work through it chronologically. So of course you have the singles matches, but the tag matches very much feed into the broader story of that. So I think that to get the full story of it, you have to first be introduced to Mizawa and Kabashi through those six-man tag matches. Um, and of course, the famous one in 91, but sort of any time you had the trio of Mizawa, Kawada, and Kabashi going up against Saruta, Tawa, and Fuchi, um, it's 
always magic, sort of that dynamic of those six um, involved with each other. Um, and then you sort of really do have to see um, Misawa, Misawa's first match against Saruta, but at the same time, it is worth seeing Bashi is doing. So there's a lot of great work in his tag team with Kikuchi. And then sort of you move on to the era of the Kobashi and Mizawa tag team. And there is no better tag team match than that 95-1 with them against the Holy Demon Army. I think that if you want to see any tag team match, that is the go-to for what you can see from, from that. And then you keep going from there through to the further singles matches. And that'll give you the full impression of who both of these people are, their journey as partners and then as rivals. So you do get that sort of snapshot of the story with all of the key moments involved. And is there any of their singles matches that is like your particular favorite that you would just hang your hat on as the definitive Kobashi and Misawa match? For me, it is very much the 2003 match. I think that, that is the culmination of everything that has gone before it. You build into that match the story of all of the previous singles matches. I'm always a big fan of a well-executed ending in a story. And this really brings up everything to this brilliant climax um, you have in that match. I think the great sense of urgency and desperation from both wrestlers determination that neither of them want to lose. You see it, you see a rare breaks in Mizawa's stoicism. You see this great passion from him in the facial expressions. And when you have someone like Mizawa, who's so known for being so stoic and does everything in terms of their physicality, even the smallest changes in their facial expressions could carry a lot of meaning. The look on his face as he's trying to put Kabashi down um, unsuccessfully. And I think that it just brings this huge cathartic moment. You can see it in the live crowds, how much this means, but it is a match that very much depends on what has gone before it. So it is great on, on its own, but it is even better at the end of everything previously. I would absolutely 100% agree. Yeah, this has been absolutely wonderful. And I would recommend for anyone listening to please look up the matches that Jack referenced. A lot of them that Jack referenced are also very easily found via Jack, actually. You can find a lot of them via Jack, but you can find a lot of them just via uh, YouTube in general, which is the great thing about some of those matches. And um, I would also say, please make sure that you look up Jack's article via Kickout, or articles rather, Burning the Walls of Emerald series. They are brilliant. They are extensive and they are so well researched and you will learn something about these two figures that you didn't know before in reading Jack's work. So I highly recommend those. And that's about the questions that we had for you, Jack. And we just want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We truly appreciate it. And we just value um, all of your time. Thank you very much. I was happy to be a part of it. And um, I really enjoy listening to your show. So I think it was great to make a contribution. Thank you very much.
as always, thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. We're so grateful for all of you for your super kind feedback and comments always. And please don't forget to subscribe to us or follow us on your platform of choice that you get our episodes first when they drop. And subscribing to us and giving us a five-star review or rating on your preferred platform really does help us as we grow, not only kick out, but also talking triple crown. So please uh, remember to do that for us if you can. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at kickout299. You can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y star. And you can find Alicia at Shiranuikai with two eyes. We also have our blog, kickout299.wordpress.com. That's where you can find articles by people like Jack, by people like Zavi, our other contributors. If you're interested in submitting questions and feedback to us, or if you have an interest in submitting a pitch for the blog or the podcast, please use kickoutat299 at gmail.com. We've got some fun future episodes coming up at you. We've got our Dragon Gate Factions episode with Zavi and Zaki, and that will be on September 13th. We have a deep dive on Suwama on September 27th. And as always, make sure you follow our Twitter to see what else we have planned for coming episodes and projects. Thank you all so much, and we will talk to you soon.